Hey, it's great to see everybody. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and if you are a part of Rio, uh, and you did your personal worship this week, you know that there's, there's, contro- there's controversy out there. There's, there's controversy in this passage, as Jimmy Fallon would, Fallon would say, con- controversy. Uh, because uh, in this passage it begins, of course we've been studying a whole, a whole book, a whole letter of the Apostle Paul to his church at Corinth, but it just happens that the way that we broke up the passages, you open up your, your, your Bible this week and you, you, you get down to business in verse 34 of 1 Corinthians 14, and it just comes right out and Paul says, women be quiet in church, and if you have any questions, go home and ask your husband. And then he just moves on, and then he leaves me to preach that, and now you know why Tom is 800 miles away. Um, uh, and we had a lot of fun talking about this, and, um, but let me tell you something. I am actually excited. I'm actually energized to talk about this. The reason I've been getting these silly emails all week, oh, I wonder how you're going to handle this one. I'm praying for you, ha ha, you know, all these kinds of things, you know, like it's a NASCAR race and they're just waiting for the wreck. Um, the reason that this is a really important thing to talk about and the reason we need to step into these issues, because it's very polarizing, it's gender. It's gender issues, right? And in our culture especially, it's a very polarizing issue, but don't be deceived. That's been a polarizing issue throughout history. And it's really important that we as thoughtful Christians step into the middle of this because um, I'll talk about our church specifically, you know, and, and, and extend it into culture a little bit. There are kind of two camps when we talk about gender roles and gender issues. And, I, and I'm going to throw out a third camp that, that none of us agree with, okay, that somehow women are to be under the thumb of men. You know, there's only, one, there's only one creature in all the universe who's under anyone's thumb, and that's Satan, and he's under God's thumb. That's it. So you can start right there, but there are two camps. There's one camp that um, really uh, seeks to fight for and defend the equality of gender, which um, is, is radically important. There's one camp that... Um, really battles for that. There's another camp, and maybe especially those of us who've grown up in the church um, under a traditional understanding of Scripture, uh, who fall into this camp of women's submission, and that implies a lot of things to you. And um, in the middle of all of that, there is truth, but it's very polarizing, and we are in a very polarized culture. And what happens with these polarizing issues is we either fight over them on Facebook and get nowhere, or we just don't talk about them until it comes up and when it needs to be thoughtfully considered and applied, we can't do it. We just can't do it because we haven't talked. So it's very important that we step into the middle of this issue as thoughtful Christians and we talk about it. And in order to do that, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do a few things as we enter into this conversation. And this goes for everybody, no matter where you fall on these, on these issues of gender. The first thing I want you to do is let your thinking be challenged on this. Wherever you stand, because I think that what we're going to talk about today will challenge everyone's thinking a little bit. And I want you to accept a premise that there are just transcendent ideas out there, okay? Ideas that are bigger than you and bigger than culture that, um, that need to form you, that need to change you as you come to understand them. Otherwise, if you submit everything to what you already think and you make what you already think the litmus test for truth, then guess what? You never grow. You never change. You never become different. You never you never grow. Um, so, some of you are really going to need to open yourselves to considering this idea that men and women in general were created differently and that that's not just a physical thing, but that we were created to complement each other, not only physically, but emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. 
And you need to open your minds to think about that. Others of you will need to challenge your thinking on what that implies. You'll need to challenge your thinking on what that implies about men and women and their roles and authority and submission and gifts and where you should use them and all those sorts of things. So, if you'll do that with me, I think we can have a really important conversation about this. So, with that in mind, here goes. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 to 40. He says, in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones who it has reached? And by the way, when he says that, he's not speaking to women, he's speaking to the whole church. You would, if you see it in the whole context, he's speaking to this whole church, men and women. He says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. He talked about that. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. He talked about that. But all of these things should be done decently and in order. So the first thing I want to talk about is what Paul is not saying. And this may help a lot with some uh, of these polarizing issues, but it won't help completely. But let me tell you what he's not saying, okay? Paul is not saying that women are forbidden to speak publicly or to use their gifts in the church. He is not saying that they are to go home and be wallflowers and sit silently in the shadows of their husbands. That's not what he's saying. We're going to get a little Bible nerdy here for a little bit, okay? We're going to dig into some of these, just a couple things that I want to show you. But it's important that you do this because any time you have an issue like this, or any issue, but certainly one as potentially polarizing as this, it's important that you really thoughtfully consider the whole counsel of Scripture and not just sort of a few proof texts that prove what you already think. So I I want to go through a couple things with you. First of all, just a few chapters before Paul says these words about women being silent in church, in 1 Corinthians 11, he refers to women prophesying and praying publicly. He says, when you do that, do it this way. If you go back to Acts chapter 21, you see four prophetess daughters of Philip the Evangelist. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter says a huge thing. When he preaches the first evangelistic sermon, he quotes the prophet Joel who says this, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So, right out of the gate, we can say that what Paul was not saying in this moment was women are never to talk, they're never to use their gifts, they're never to be, you know, if if they're leaders, it doesn't matter, they can only lead women and children. There is nowhere in Scripture that qualifies that. If you look back in the Old Testament, this is a big one. Huldah the prophetess was approached by Hilkiah. Now, let me tell you who Hilkiah was. He was the high priest of Judah. He was the most high-ranking spiritual official of the nation of Judah, and they had lost their way. And the king, Josiah, sent him to her for a prophecy. And if you look at that story in 1 Kings, let me tell you how she begins. She says, thus saith the Lord. And then it's not pretty after that. And they submit to what she says and take it back to their king. Deborah the judge 
on par with Samson and all the other judges, also a prophetess. And her words were recorded in the scripture along with several other women in the Old Testament. Several other women's songs and, and prophecies were recorded in scripture. Are we to think that what Paul was saying is that we shouldn't teach on those scriptures? We shouldn't read them aloud except for women and children? Of course not. That would be silly. So that's clearly not what Paul was saying. Esther the queen. These are just a few examples of women in all sorts of roles, all kinds of roles in Scripture. So we know that Paul was not making a blanket prohibition of women speaking or using their gifts in public. So what was he saying? Well, first of all, he was addressing a cultural issue. He had the same problem uh, that he was dealing with with regard to tongues and with people getting up and prophesying out of order. Here's what was happening. They had a church, and it was modeled after um, ancient Jewish synagogue worship, okay? But it was a little different than ours today. Today, we have a senior pastor. We have someone who is the teaching pastor every week. They didn't have that. They had a group of elders who were men. And they would invite itinerant rabbis who traveled around to come and speak like Jesus did. And if there weren't any to come and speak, they would have three or four appointed people to get up and prophesy, to get up and speak. And remember, prophesying isn't just predicting the future or something like that. Prophesying is forth-telling, telling the truth. And then what would happen is they would get up in order and in turn, and then the elders would rule. They'd get up and they'd say, amen, and they would declare that this was of the Lord, or they would say, well, point A was good, point B not so much. And the elders' job as the overseers of the church was to protect the veracity of what was said, to protect the orthodoxy of the church and the purity of Scripture. So that's, what, that's how it worked. And what we saw is that a lot of chaos was happening in their services. Okay, They were feeling this freedom in Christ. They were feeling broken free from the bonds of their legalism and their old way of doing religion. And so what was happening is people were getting up out of turn and prophesying, well, I have a word, I have a word, the Lord told me. And it was chaos, and some people were even getting up, maybe a lot of people were even getting up and speaking in an undiscernible language that no one could get. And not only was that not edifying to the other Christians in the room, but if you were a non-Christian who didn't know anything about this, you were freaked out. Well, so he addresses these issues one after the other, and one of them in two sentences is about women. The women should be silent in church. It's shameful and disgraceful you to get up and speak. Well, what he's saying is there was a group of women in this church who were being specifically disrespectful, and they were being um, disrespectful not only to uh, the people there and the elders, but to their culture. What he was saying was, it's not your turn. You're not to get up and speak whenever you want. And these questions that you're shouting out and asking of the elders, you have someone in your life in the right context who should know about those questions. You, ought, you have someone to answer those, not here. That's your husband. Now, why did he say that? Because men are better? No. He said that because the husbands were supposed to know the Bible. Implication, men, you should know the Bible. And you should be able to speak to it. You should be able to take Scripture and apply it to life and lead your family in that way. So he was saying, look, you've got somebody you can ask about that. Quit being crazy in the worship service. Go home and ask your husband. And by the way, in that culture, outside of Jewish culture, women were not supposed to be educated. And that was bad. That was a bad thing. But you need to remember something about Paul that they didn't teach you at university. Paul was a modern-day feminist in his time. When Paul said, in Christ, there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, that was radical. That could get you in trouble. 
When Paul said, wives, submit to your husbands. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And submit to each other. Radical. Paul always would name women in his ministry as co-workers, co-laborers, co-equals with him. He would talk about prophetesses and all different kinds of women in leadership roles. He mentioned them all the time with great joy. So just remember that about Paul, but he was dealing with a cultural issue. But he was saying something else too that transcends culture, and this is the part that may still be of controversy or misunderstanding to us. He was certainly, in this passage and others, affirming male headship in two places, in the church and in marriage. And it was a transcendent argument, okay? In 1 Timothy 2, Paul doesn't just appeal. He makes this similar statement about women being silent in church, but he doesn't just appeal to culture. He appeals to the creation order. He says Adam was created in chronological priority. He was identified as the head, and therefore, therefore, And he goes on to make the argument about male headship. With regard to marriage in Ephesians 5, Paul asserts that wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Now that's not something that changes culturally. But let's go back before Paul. When we look just experientially in Scripture, 12 disciples of Jesus, all men. Now Jesus was a a radical. He was a cultural radical. He certainly wasn't afraid of telling the truth against culture. Uh, Jesus spoke to a woman at a well in broad daylight who was known for sleeping around, spoke to her directly, took a drink of water directly from her, totally radical. He stood between a prostitute and people who were rightly in their culture going to stone her to death and defended her right to live because he said, he who's not sinned cast the first stone. Just this last week, a woman was strangled in Pakistan. Uh, An activist for women's rights was strangled as an honor killing along with 500 other people, mostly women, over the last year. Culturally, Jesus was a radical even then. He would be a radical today in a lot of places. He chose 12 disciples. What a wonderful opportunity to make a statement. He chose 12 men. And you have to consider that. The 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, even though Jacob had a daughter, the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fathers of, his, of God's people. But here's maybe the, the most compelling one of all. We see throughout Scripture that God made Adam, the first man, the federal head, is the term that we use, of humanity. And here's the deal. That might sound glorious and glamorous to you, but Adam, the first Adam, the federal head, was the federal head responsible for the sin of the world. The sin of the world. Christ is called the second Adam. The Adam who had victory over sin. The the first Adam led the world into destruction and the second Adam, Jesus, conquered death. But he holds up Adam as the federal head, even though in the garden, which we'll talk about in a little bit, there was an Adam and there was an Eve and they both sinned. God holds Adam accountable. So it's there. The Bible teaches male headship in two places, the church and the home, and that means that there is a unique role and responsibility assigned to men that involves spiritual oversight. And by the way, outside the walls of this church, women running companies and women doing anything that they're capable and qualified of doing, nothing to do with spiritual oversight, and even inside the walls, gifts of leading and teaching and all these things. 
we see in Scripture. We, we, we saw in Scripture all of those things women were engaging in inside and outside of the church. But there is this distinction that involves male headship. And I know that at least some of you are sitting there, sitting on your hands, still not convinced. And I don't want to be cavalier about this and say, hey, suck it up. And I'll tell you why. I, I, have, uh, I have three daughters. I was raised by a very strong mother. My mother is 84 years old. She was just the president of her condo association. They did $200,000 remodeling the building. 84. My wife is a strong leader. If you know her, she's a strong, gifted leader and communicator. And I raised daughters. And here's what I know as a guy who's been around a lot of women in his life. I know that this idea that women have been persecuted is very real. It's absolutely true that women suffer things that men do not. I wouldn't worry about my daughter at FSU walking across the campus at night if she was a son. My aunt was an incredibly successful salesperson for an international um, department store. She made a third more revenue for the company than did her male counterpart, and he made a third more money than her. That's wrong. So there are these inequities and injustices out there. Women have to worry about things that men don't have to worry about. And it's true that men have, at best, had a tendency not to worry about the things that we should. So this is when I need you to hear this out, because there's a solution to this. And it is beautiful. And if we lived this way, if we lived it out... All of that injustice, all of that abuse, all of those inequities would utterly disappear. And this solution, this, this divine, beautiful solution, resides not in culture, not in the created order of humanity even. It resides in the very character of God Himself. You cannot understand true authority and submission, true headship and submission until you understand the relationship between God and His Son and between His Son and His Bride, which is you. Let's hear some words of Jesus Himself. Jesus is, is one of the Godhead, the triune God, God who is three in one, all of them equal in power and eternity, all of them equally sufficient. Self-sufficient, co-equal, co-eternal. What does Jesus say of himself? He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. Imagine for a moment if I read that, if Didi, my wife, read that. Uh, I don't speak on my own authority, I speak on Matt's authority, and I do what he's told me to do, what he told me to say. How controversial would that be? Jesus said that of his Father. And John 14, I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Well, God's not greater than him in terms of his power, ability, or his independence, or anything like that, or his dignity. What he means is that there is an eternal, voluntary relationship of submission. Just like when, when, when the Scriptures call the woman the weaker vessel. There's a voluntary relationship of submission I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is maybe my favorite, because this is real. This isn't just Jesus waxing theological. 
There's this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus is sent to the cross to die. He's literally on his knees praying, weeping tears of blood, literally bearing the burden of the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders. And he cries out to his father, and this is what he says, if this cup cannot pass me by, then nonetheless, your will be done. The co-equal, co-eternal Savior of the universe willingly submits to the command and authority of the Father. That's what the Bible means by submission. So it's interesting. This pattern, this model of a woman's role of submission is not, uh, of submission to spiritual headship, is not patterned after some uber woman in the Bible. It's not modeled after the way Eve did things or one of these great women did things. It's modeled after a man. It's modeled after Jesus. And likewise, the role of the husband as Lord over the wife, well, Lord like Jesus is Lord. Also modeled after Jesus. How was Jesus Lord? Contemplate that. What did his lordship, what did his marriage to his bride, the church, have to do with his superiority, with anyone being under anyone's thumb, with him leveraging his power over his bride? No, it was just the opposite. The lordship of Jesus is reflected in servanthood. I must decrease. Christ must increase. Jesus says, I decrease. The Father increases. Christ is the model for both headship and submission. I'm going to tell you, I think that that's utterly beautiful, and I would defend that to the death. And I think it's reflected in our personal and our human experience. You can go all the way back to the beginning And you see how it plays out with us in terms of these roles of of headship and submission. God the creator creates everything and it's beautiful. And the, the, the crown of his creation is this being that is also a creator. He creates a man to create and he gives them a mission. He gives him a mission and he says, go and cultivate this earth like a royal garden. Take what I have created and Create with it after my image. Make it ordered. Make it beautiful. Make it prosperous. Make it flourish. And he puts him in it. And he leaves him alone in it just long enough to realize there's something wrong. Something insufficient. Something missing. It is not good for man to be alone. So he makes a helpmate suitable for him, a parakletos. Now there's two interesting things about that word, that Greek word, parakletos. It means helpmate like the Holy Spirit. It's the same word used for the Holy Spirit. An encourager, an equipper, a wise counsel, an empowerer. And there's another use of that term, it's a military term, it means reinforcer. Someone who comes alongside the head and provides power, and authority, and practical application of the leadership of the head. So God makes him a helpmate suitable for him. And what does Adam do? He writes a poem. 
When he first sees her, he says, oh my gosh, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I will call her woman because she came from me. He utterly cherishes this relationship and it's beautiful and it's complementary and they need each other to accomplish this mission to cultivate the garden. They are one flesh, it says, co-equal. They are naked and not ashamed, it says, totally vulnerable to each other and to God. They're complementary in shape. They're interdependent both physically and spiritually for their purpose. And it's beautiful. And to deny that they're not built down to their flesh to be complementary to each other and serve different roles is silly. The question is, what are the implications of that on our intellectual, spiritual, emotional relationship. So it's beautiful, but why do we struggle so much with it? I'm going to tell you why, because right after that story happened in the, in the garden, another story happened, and we became corrupted. And one of the things that was corrupted was our understanding of our relationship, the relationship between man and woman. It was very clear. So I, I want you to imagine this for a moment. Maybe you read the story a thousand times, but I want you to think about what really happened here, okay? So Eve uh, is approached by this tempter, right? Evil Satan, the serpent, he comes to Eve and he tempts her. And maybe what you've never caught before is guess who was standing right next to her? It says he was with her, Adam. It wasn't like Adam was off tilling the garden and didn't know any of this was happening. He was standing right there. And Eve interacted with the devil while Adam wasn't paying attention, shirking his responsibility. She was tempted she didn't talk to Adam. He didn't pay attention and intervene and protect her. Does this, by the way, echo with the most common complaints between men and women today? She's fending for herself. She's trying to deal with this, but also not honoring his role and going to him and saying, hey, Adam, what do I do with this? He's not watching and being vigilant and stepping in to intervene and so she falls. And not only does she fall, he goes with her and falls with her. The head joins the body in their own destruction, and then what happens? When God comes to him to hold him, the head, accountable, he throws her under the bus. This woman that you gave me... Well, here's the message. God didn't care what she had done. He cared in that they were both guilty of sin. They were both corrupted by it. They had both introduced death into their lives... But Adam was responsible. Adam was the one who would be remembered for failing his responsibilities. And in that moment, we see gender roles and how they were broken. And it reflects perfectly in our culture today. Men shunning their responsibilities. Women and men in competition battling each other women seeking position. All these things have been playing out since the beginning of time. Interesting, there's a book by a woman named Carol Gilligan. It's called In a Different Voice. And she set out to really research the differences between men and women, see what, if, if there are differences and what, and what they might be. And in general, here's what she found. Women in general, and this is in general, I understand that 
there's a continuum here and that some women and some men are different. But in general, women value interdependence. They feel like they're maturing and growing as a human being the more they're engaged in culture, strong, durable relationships, connectedness to community. They value the weaving together of a strong cultural fabric. That's generally what women value. The corruption of that interdependence is overdependence. It's relying on a man. I'm not complete without a man. I've got to find a man. I'll do whatever I can to get a man if I can only find a man to love me. I deal with this all the time. We deal with this all the time in Hope South Florida with, with homeless single moms who had three, four, five children. All the time, the, when, you're, when you're sitting down with them in a thoughtful moment, they will say, I just thought if I could have his child, he would love me. Overdependence. Or overdependence on the need to be like a man to adopt his role in order to find your value. In other words, the way God made me is not valuable. The gifts that I bring are not valuable. The dignity of being a woman is not what I champion. That I dismiss. I champion the values of a man or or whatever he declares is valuable. And that's what I go after. So if men... If men sleep around and that's cool for men, but it's bad for women, well, then I'm just, we, we should validate women doing that too. If men become workaholics and neglect their family and all that, well, then I'm going to value that. Rather than saying, no, 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 family and interconnectedness and community should be equally valuable as this other piece of the puzzle, and we should, that's fighting for justice and equality. We say, no, 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 the way we do that is we, we usurp all the women's roles and we adopt these corrupted men's roles. Because here's what men value. Men value independence. Now, independence, self-sustainability is a good thing. That's a natural inclination to seek to have a strong platform for your family uh, whereby they are safe and secure and they can prosper and flourish. That's a good thing to want to be independent to produce more than you consume. But what is the corruption of man? The corruption of the male identity is autonomy, unaccountability, irresponsibility, and tyranny. That's what broken men do with their role as a head. They abandon the role of servant leader. So how do we fix it? Well, the best thing that we can do in this church is humbly seek to understand how these distinctive roles play out. Take the two places that God has given us to do this dance together. To do this dance, this beautiful dance, the church and the home, and we dance. We value and explore the fullest expression of our distinctives as men and women. God made us different, and here's what that means. If God made us different, then it means the differences are good and necessary and valuable, and we need to understand them in their fullness. So I want to say a few things to the men and I want to say a few things to the women. You know, as we receive God's wisdom, we're then supposed to go do what it says. So as I did my own personal worship and thought through these things, what came to mind was um, a charge that, that, that we give to men often at weddings about what it means to be Christ to their wife. Because, I mean, remember, Christ is the role model for all of us. And we say that a man in the church and in his home needs to be a prophet, a priest, a provider, and a protector. As a prophet, men, it means that you need to know the Word. It means you need to know the Word of God and be able to advocate for God to those you love. 
You need to be able to speak his wisdom to them. As priests, it means that you need to humbly go to God and advocate for the people that you love. It, mean, it means that you are their mediator in that sense. You're vigilant about their needs and their struggles, and you're taking those things to the Lord. That's your role as a spiritual head. You're a provider. Now, that doesn't just mean that you seek to put together a bunch of material wealth for your family or for the church or for whatever. You're a provider for what? You're, you're a provider of the tools it takes to help your family cultivate the garden. To help your wife and your children or the people in your church, if you're a leader in the church, be the best they can be at the mission God gave all of us to make this world just and beautiful and prosperous. To build the new heavens and the new earth on earth. That's what it means to provide. What will it take to do that? That requires wisdom, not just money. And you're a protector. Adam should have been there spiritually to protect his wife. He should have been there not just in body, but in mind and soul to step in the middle and say, here's what we do with this. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. This one wants our destruction and God warned us about this and he told us what would happen. He should have been there to protect. And that's your role as, as protector. Spiritual protection from the evil one. So men, I want you to remember this. These are your mother's wives, sisters, daughters, and you need to look at them and talk to them and talk about them in that way, the way Jesus loves his bride. It means you defend their dignity and their honor. It means you don't, behind the scenes, go, hey, did you see that? All of that kind of stuff that seems silly is, is a corruption of your role as Christ. Stand up for them, sacrifice them. That's spiritual headship. Women, your role is reinforcer. Let me say this very clearly. You are never, ever required to submit to the abuse of a male role. You are not required to submit to abuse. You're not required to submit to evil, to submit to sin, to enable your husband to be spiritually weak. Not only is that not good for you, it's not good for him. As reinforcement, you hold your male leaders your husbands, your leaders in your church, wherever they are, you hold them accountable to their role. You put their feet to the fire. You know, there have been times when I have been, though the head, the weakest in my marriage, and I've had to have my wife come alongside me and lead me out of my sin. I've had to have my wife and the women in our lives. And by the way, this church is beautiful about that. I've seen women in this church come around, not only a wife, but the broken husband and show the husband that he is not hated, but that they're rooting for him and they're rooting for the marriage. And it's beautiful. That's the spirit of helpmate reinforcement submission. Hold the men accountable to their roles. And remember, these are your husbands, these are your fathers, these are your brothers, these are your sons. Treat them as such. Protect their dignity. Protect their integrity and demand it of them. And you'll fulfill your role. So I close with this. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he describes it beautifully for all of us and reminds us to all of us that the model for us is Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
one substance with God, did not account equality with God something to be grasped, coveted, competed for, but emptied himself by taking the form of what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men and found in human form, he humbled himself, here it comes, men, by becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedient to whom? To the Father. Even death on a cross. That is thoughtful headship and submission. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you as broken vessels, as idle factories, as people who take everything uh, by, because of our sinful nature, who, who tend to take things, anything we can grab onto that isn't you, to become gods for ourselves. And we include our genders in that. We include our relationships. Lord, we, we, we cast before you the sin of abuse, where we've abused our gender roles, the sin of resentment or competition, where we've competed against each other, the sin of neglect, where we failed to fulfill our role to the peril of our relationships. We lay those things before you and we're so grateful that our model is Jesus. We pray that you would make us more like him. In Jesus' name, amen.